0: Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. I'll tell you what, we have a really special and timely episode for you all today. Today, my guest is Fumi Jimo. Fumi is a United States Olympian. She's a three-time world championship team member, a coach, and a very successful entrepreneur. However, we did something a little different today. I really didn't spend too much time walking through her athletic journey. Olympic athletes brought conversations about mental health to the forefront this year. And today we had an Olympian who has been open about her struggles and was kind enough and honest enough to share her experiences, to share her struggles, and then share some thoughts on strategies that she used to work through them. And she also does a great job playing armchair therapist as I throw out a few thoughts that I've struggled with over the years. So I decided just to throw some topics at Fumi that I believe she could add a unique perspective on and she completely delivered on topics like growing up in a multicultural environment, mental health, being hard on yourself, self-confidence. And we even spent some time talking about whether or not we as a community right now are spending too much time sweating the small things. Fumi You are kind. You are warm. I thank you for coming on. You absolutely light up a room and I certainly appreciate your perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, the powerful Fumi Jimo. Guys, I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us and listening to this episode. If you like what we're doing here, please share the episode with your community. Please follow us on Instagram. Please follow us on Twitter. And you may have even seen that we just released some merchandise, some t-shirts and some tank tops on our website. Feel free to check those out. We sure appreciate each and every one of you. All right, Boomy. Welcome. Thank you for being here. It's nice to finally meet you in person. Likewise. What I usually do is kind of walk through the sports journey, but I'm not going to do that today. I have a good feeling about you. So (laughs) I have a number of topics that I think you're uniquely qualified to speak on. I know you've been open about mental health, so I think we're just going to go for it. And as we hit topics that you want to drop your sports, your athletic anecdotes, please do. But I'll also ask you a few questions there. So I want to get this away out of the way early. Is it true that you could dunk a basketball in middle school?
1: It is true that on a middle school goal, I could dunk a middle school basketball. That is correct.
0: How high is a middle school goal?
1: I don't know. But I mean, it's not short, but it's not a standard goal. But yes, this is true. And then I could dunk a tennis ball on a standard goal when I was in university.
0: The reason I Mm -hmm. asked you is because this probably doesn't matter to anyone who listens, but where I grew up in Mm -hmm. Austin, Leaping ability was a status symbol. It really was. <laughs> yeah. Specifically the ability to dunk a basketball. It starts mm-hmm. in middle school with who can get the net, who can get oh, the yeah. backboard, who can dunk a tennis ball. Oh, yeah. And then it became this thing in high school where everyone had the strengths to use. Do you remember strengths shoes with the platform on the show?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And everyone, Never had them, but it, I remember them.
0: Well, it became an identity for us. So when I heard that, I was like, was that cool? Was that something that made you stand out and you just didn't want to be different or...
1: No, I, I will say this. Freakishly, out of my junior high school, there were a lot of excellent athletes. My junior high school was in Arkansas. From my small junior high school in Fayetteville, Arkansas, we, at the very least, there might be more, have two Olympians, myself and Wallace Spearman. We were like maybe two years apart, Wow. both track and field. We had excellent track and field athletes. I feel like before Eugene was track town, Fayetteville, Arkansas was track town. And part of my high jump training was, you know how they have all the goals, like four, six goals? Yeah, around. six goals. We had to go up and touch the backboard on each one.
0: That's exactly we what we did. And
1: there. And I mean, I trained with boys and girls. I don't think, it, I didn't think it was odd at the time.
0: It wasn't odd for a girl to be dunking in basketball in middle school.
1: I also grew up with some really awesome basketball players candace brewer actually ronnie brewer who played for the rockets went to my junior high school his sister played collegiate basketball she was awesome like we had a lot of really talent it's weird i bet
0: you pushed each other
1: yeah which raised the bottom so you you didn't realize some of the kind of excellent things you were doing were excellent because everyone was moderately excellent if not pretty excellent so then it was like who is world class
0: Well, I'm not even a leaper, but it's still part of my identity. Is (laughs) it part of your identity?
1: Oh, yes. The other day, one of my young athletes who I train, she's always like, coach, and I don't warm up. I don't do anything. She's like, coach, can you just do one for me? Just do one. I'm like... Yes, because I'm about to show you what I can still do. I love jumping. I will show off at any moment. Like I love it.
0: I I do box jumps in the gym. I do mm-hmm. lateral jumps, and mm-hmm. multiple times people come up and go, "What are you training for?" And I'm, Life. Uh, nothing. Life. <laughs> and then I'll go into the basketball gym, make sure I can still get a ball down mm-hmm. every now and then. It's been a year since COVID, but at mm-hmm. my 37th birthday, I still could get it down. So mm-hmm. hopefully, I still can. But I get that. No one no one cares about that but me. But I had to ask. I care so.
1: about that. I think that's awesome.
0: Well, 38 years old, still dunking a basket. I'm proud of that. And I'm just a a dad nowadays. So you were born in Seattle. I just heard Arkansas. Okay. How did this work?
1: So let me give you my geography. Born in Seattle, where my parents met, they moved to Houston. And I was in Houston until fifth grade. Then I moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas. My mom's a professor. My dad is an engineer. And they went where the Good jobs were, I guess. And at that time, my mom was teaching um, here in Houston at University of Houston. She got her PhD here. She taught at Prairie View as well, and then we we moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, where she taught at University of Arkansas, and then moved back here, and I finished high school in Sugarland. Went to Dallas High School and then ended up at Rice. Well,
0: your mom sounds like a powerful woman. You had quite the role model.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my mom plays zero games. Uh, She is a PhD of literature, worked really hard to make sure that all her children were well-educated, well-read, well-traveled, well, well, all of that.
0: Are both your parents Nigerian?
1: No, my mom is not Nigerian. My dad is.
0: Okay, is your mom American? Yes. Well, I like to ask female athletes about their dad. I'm a Mm -hmm. father of two girls. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to talk about your dad for a bit. Was he an important role model in your life? Yes,
1: I love my dad. What are the so things much. your dad
0: did that you love? I want to learn.
1: You know, my dad was just super supportive. Anything I wanted to do, he was like, sure. Like it was never I never thought that oh, I can't do this because I'm a girl or anything like that. Anything that I wanted to do, he was supportive of it. He was also, he gave me so much personal pride because he I'd be like, "Oh, dad, you can't do that. I call him Baba. I'd be like, Baba, you can't do that. And he'd be like, what do you mean? I can't do that. My name is Gmo. I can do that. And I'd, I'd be like, well, shoot, my name is Gmo too. I can do that. And like, that was kind of our a thing. Like, oh no, my name is Gmo. I can do that. And so matter of fact, no crack of a smile, nothing. So that's how I felt.
0: So you got your confidence from him.
1: I got my confidence from both of my parents, but for my dad, I don't even think it was pretense. Like <laughs> he really feels this way now as an adult. He's still like that. It's not pretense. He really feels that way. And I did too. And anything, my parents let me know from day one, they really did not care what I'm the baby of the family. It might be probably the reason why also, but they're like, don't care what you do, but be the best. Mm-hmm. And I really tried to. And I took that very seriously.
0: Your dad's from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Here, I have a, great friend from Nigeria well she's Nigerian American she's Mm -hmm. actually the girl I took to prom of all things (laughs) and she was at the house a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. one of the things she had said when we were growing up that clay in Nigerian household there are four professions (laughs) doctor lawyer engineer or failure and so (laughs) sports and she ran track also Mm -hmm. sports was not priority is this how you grew up
1: No, No. actually. My dad is an engineer. My mom is a professor, which I would say would probably be one of those that they say, okay, that's fine. But I, no, my parents told me to be good at whatever I do. Literally. I never felt that pressure. And I do understand that is very much, very much Nigerian culture, very much. And I probably know it now more as an adult and maybe even in college, but my parents never pressured me like that. And my talents didn't lie in those things. So why push your child to be miserable?
0: They just wanted you to be great.
1: They just wanted me to, anything I do, be excellent and to do it with integrity. All of those things were what were pushed. But not that you had to be this one thing. Never in my life did I ever feel that.
0: One of the things my friend who I just spoke about, talked about, and we ha- we've had some great conversations, was that there were some challenges for her growing up in a multicultural environment. She was Nigerian in the household Mm -hmm. and American outside the household. Mm -hmm. Did you experience any of that? Were there challenges to growing up in a multicultural environment for you?
1: Not for me. And I will say probably because my mother is American born. Mm -hmm. But it, it it wasn't challenging. So there might be some cultural things that especially a girl might experience with a Nigerian mother as opposed to an American born mother. I'm hypothesizing. I don't really know, but I I think so. Culturally, no, there were just some things I'm like, okay, my friends who aren't Nigerian aren't going to get this. But also I feel like my formative years really were in Houston where there are so many Nigerians here that Nigerian culture kind of became regular culture to me. Like a lot of my non-Nigerian friends are really in, in Nigerian culture as well. And if not, well, come with me because we're about to experience this together. I was super proud of my heritage.
0: You embraced it?
1: Still am. Yeah, I completely embraced it. Like, completely embraced it. My mom made sure that we embraced it. Like, it was nothing that I felt. I mean, people who are ignorant, who I was taught when I was young, might have, like, maybe mean things to say because I'm Nigerian. But other than that,
0: it What does it mean to embrace culture to you?
1: So to embrace culture and embracing Nigerian culture is just, for me, is embracing food embracing tradition, embracing our attire. But it wasn't like an active embracing of these things because it's still, it was just my life. You know what I mean? like I'm eating some cultural foods but that's what we eat so I don't you know I don't know or I know that I'm going to wear this kind of outfit to this Nigerian party even though it's not a western wear but it's what we do well, I and I like
0: what I guess what I guess what I've learned over the years is to not be reductive to embrace I think what you're saying is embrace complexity mm-hmm. that Cultures, people, they're not just one thing. Mm -hmm. They're food, they're dress, they're the way of life, but Mm -hmm. they're also I guess what I'm trying to say is that they're complex and they shouldn't be reduced to one thing.
1: I, I agree with you, and I'll say even within being Nigerian, that means so many things. There are so many religions. You know, I have Catholic family, I have Muslim family, I have Jewish family. I have all kinds of family and we're going to all meet together under the same roof and pray and eat and congregate and rejoice. And that was my life for as long as I've known it. So it was so normal to me to have literally all kinds of people, all kinds of foods, religions, clothing, languages. It's not odd for me to be in the house and hear a bunch of languages and be like, okay, well, I'll just wait till I hear my name or a language that I understand. It's
0: fine. Do you think your personality, this outgoing, gregarious personality, is part of your Nigerian culture? Because every Nigerian I know is welcoming, they're warm, they're friendly. Is that, com- is that coming from your Nigerian side, do you think?
1: So I think that both my parents taught me to be open and accepting. But it's really easy to be open and accepting when you're a little bit nervous about people being ac- accepting of you right? So how dare you not be open and accepting of people if you are not? So it's not even a, a thought process. And one thing that was just very important in our household was treating people well and being fair. Like character development in my house was number one on all levels. You have to be of good character. That, ma- that was paramount to everything, was being of good character. And when you're a good character, it's easier to be happy it's easier to be kind to people, but I will say a lot of my openness and even loquaciousness now is only because of maturity because I even though I was open and culturally, you know, fine with in accepting of all kinds of people in my own culture, I was not a an outgoing child. I was not a talkative young adult. I had to even grow into that. I was very shy. Like it's pretty famously known that I was very shy even when I first got to university. But then I grew into it because I, I was a... Like, Rice was a culture shock to me. That was different. I had never been in that kind of environment, but no one has. It's university and we all live here and that's weird. You know, that's different. No one has lived like that unless they went to boarding school and I didn't. My sister did. I did not. But I did have to grow into being able to be expressive. I did have to grow into that because I was a little bit shy outside of my household, but now I'm not.
0: (laughs) Absolutely you're not. Well, you've certainly accomplished a lot in life, but it sounds like you stood on some tall shoulders. What do you think allowed you to grow out of this shyness? I mean, my observation Mm -hmm. of you just meeting you now is you're, like I said, you're gregarious, you're clearly intelligent. I hope you don't mind me saying that, but you're beautiful. Those things I would think would make it easier, but did you grow into all of these things later in life?
1: Yes, I think because comparison is the thief of joy. Very important Teddy Roosevelt. It's, It's true. And I'll say that I felt special in my home, but I'm sure my sisters did too, because our parents made us feel that way. I felt accepted and special in my community. I felt accepted and special in my high school. When I got to university, especially at Rice, you know how it is. It's incredibly competitive. And that's a little bit scary. So rather than kind of be like, ah, oh, I'm going to join in the, I want to be the top dog kind of person. I kind of shied away at first. Cause I'm just like, let me see what's going on. Maybe I'm, I believe maybe I'm not as smart as everyone here or I'm not as cool as everyone here. I'm, I don't know. I wasn't really sure, but so I kind of had to sit back and look and see, you know, where do I fit in? How do I fit in? What is my personality? And it did take me a while, but then I realized we all don't know. I realized this, in university, like maybe second semester, maybe, maybe my second year, but like nobody knows anything. We're all here because we're learning. If you knew you'd be the professor and there's a place for everyone. So at that point I was like, I don't care.
0: What I found when I ended up at Rice is that we're all this unique combination of self-confidence and self-doubt. If you ask yes. anyone who knows me, mm-hmm. they would tell you he is supremely confident, maybe even arrogant about <laughs> things to be honest, but the reality is, is that self-doubt was always swimming around. Yeah. When I showed up at Rice, I felt the same way. Mm-hmm. I've had that conversation on this podcast is mm-hmm. we all came in, yeah. even highly touted recruits. Mm-hmm. And even those that went on and played professional sports, self-doubt is always there. That's- it's always, I don't, I'm don't i lost for the word, but it's always competing yeah. with that self-confidence. Mm-hmm. That ties in nicely to my next question, getting into your track journey a bit. I read that you didn't think you were great, a great <laughs> athlete until two thousand eight at twenty four yeah. years old, yeah, and another special thing about two thousand eight that's the year you represented the United States in yeah. Beijing. Is that true?
1: that is true number one humility almost humility maybe to a fault is something that my parents made sure I had, so I was actually just communicating with my one of my young athletes. And I was telling the mom, don't let her know right now how awesome that is, how awesome what she just did in front of her eyes. Don't let her know how awesome that is because you don't want to stress her out. You don't want her to conflate it in her head. She's maybe not old enough, mature enough, analytical enough to know where to process how well she's doing what she's doing. And that is how my mom kind of handled me. She wouldn't let anyone come in, conflate in my head because she knew me. And she knew that I was a little emotional and I'd be like, what? That's amazing. Well, now I have to do it 500 million times, you know, and like ruin it. So she never let anyone come and tell me, oh, that is great. And not only that, I did belong to a lot of small ponds. And one thing my mom told me to do is never be a big fish in a small pond. Because I was in a lot of small ponds, small high school, small university, I didn't graduate until 2007. So by 2008, I hadn't been in a big pond yet. So I didn't think I was great. So I was like, Fumi, yes, you might be the best here. You might be the best in this region. You might even be the best in this state. But that doesn't mean anything because this is a global sport. And my first coach, Victor Lopez, made sure I understood that. He's like, oh, you think you're good? You're doing a good job here? There's a girl in Russia who will stomp on you right now. So you had to always, not to bring you down, but to always know, don't be happy with this little bit. There's a bigger goal. And I knew that from the very beginning. So if making it to the Olympic Games was great, then, okay, then now I think I'm great. But great would have been getting a medal. So I'm not going to say I, I'm not a great athlete, but I'm trying to say I never thought before making it to Olympic Games that somehow, oh, I'm great. No, I haven't done anything.
0: What did making an Olympic team do for you? Put me in your mindset when you made that oh, Olympic team.
1: You know what? It It was... It was like, the first thing I felt was, whew, because I feel like, man, I've been trying to, I've been training and competing for so long to what end? And I felt, and I and I kind of regret my mindset at the time because I was like, I made it to the Olympic Games, done. <laughs> Not really, but like, I feel like I felt, I worked so hard for that moment, but I feel like I should have set my my sights higher on meddling, <laughs> you know, perhaps. But the feeling of becoming an Olympian was man, validation for me. Because coming out of university and deciding, you know what, I'm going to hold off on a career path. Cause I graduated in 2007. I'm going to hold off on a career path and train for the Olympic Games. Uh, That's not the common path. And, and, and even for those who do take that path, a lot of them fail. Most of them fail. So... Making the team was like validations and like, look guys, the decision that I made and the work that I put in, it was worthwhile and I'm proud of myself and I accomplished something. I'm not really good. I'm kind of always all over the place in my brain. I have so much thinking going on. I'm not really good at getting something started and staying regimented with things, but that is the one thing in my life that I was and I did for a very long time. So I was very proud of myself.
0: What was your mindset leaving the Olympics? You mentioned you were just happy to make the team. You didn't medal, but mm-hmm. you did well, I would did say. Well. Yeah. What was your mindset when you left?
1: I was sad, I think.
0: Sad about what?
1: I was sad because I wanted to do better, but I knew even in that moment I was compl- I was not prepared. Physically I was prepared. Mentally, pff, mess. No. I kind of knew it then and I for sure know it now.
0: Describe that. Get into that. What do you so, mean?
1: So, even though, so even though I had let's say from April, I'm g- kind of guessing the dates. It was either March or April where I ended up jumping well. Could have been May for that matter, where I ended up jumping well and signing my Nike contract and deciding to go full-on professional athlete. I had not still not jumped internationally. I had my first international competition in late May. So between May and Olympic games, which was in August, I put in quite a number of international competitions. The United States circuit (laughs) is a far cry from what you're going to experience in Europe, in Asia, in the Caribbean, on an elite level. And I got all my education in competing at a high level from May until August. I'd never been on a junior team before, I hadn't competed anywhere except for wherever the NCAA took us. So I was not prepared for the stages I won. Even though on some of the the meets leading up to Olympic Games, I did do well. I won a good number of them. I jumped reasonably well, but I was still in awe. I was a tourist because I'm just like, what is this? This is amazing.
0: You were there for the opening ceremonies in the village. Yes, and I
1: was like... Competing
0: I... came second.
1: No, competing came first, but the experience. I went to Olympic Games. I got to experience yeah. this. You know what I mean?
0: Did you at least enjoy that, though?
1: I, I definitely enjoyed my Good. Olympic experience. Good. I, I enjoyed myself. I was disappointed in my performance because I didn't have the tools. I didn't. I didn't have the tools to be able to... Compose myself to know how to regulate my meter of excitement, which is very important, um, which is what I try to teach young athletes now, because too excited is a problem. Underwhelmed is a problem. You have to find that middle ground. I did not have that skill or even understand that concept. Not at that time. Everything came so fast. So fast.
0: I understand you were extremely hard on yourself during your career. I've read that or heard that. How did that behavior manifest, manifest itself?
1: It does make the getting past the bad results worse. And I never got over that. And I I am still hard on myself in all things, but I do try to be patient with myself and kinder to myself now. But throughout my entire career, I never really learned how to have a short-term memory with competition. And I'll also say I wasn't taught that. <laughs> like there are a lot of things now that I am being taught that have nothing to do with running down a runway and jumping in sand that would have made me a better athlete when I was an athlete, which is why my goal is to not just coach jumping in sand or running over hurdles, but to coach and educate people on how to handle their minds so that that is not the thing that trips you up. Because I do feel that way about a little bit about my career. It was like I was just way too emotional. And it's okay to be an emotional person, but learn how to regulate that. And don't feel as though you're a failure because you are emotional. And that's how I felt. Like people who aren't knowledgeable would be like, well, just don't do that. Well, just don't is never the answer for anything. You have to give someone the tools. You have to be patient with them. And I never got that really. Maybe some people tried, but I also probably wasn't even in the right mind space or they didn't come at me the right way for me to embrace that but I get it now. I'm a lot older now. If my body could still work that way, I'd go out there because I think my mind is better. That's just not the way it works. But now I'd love to help people not experience that emotionality like I did. Well,
0: I had a lot of, I have a lot of experience with that now, even outside of sports, because I believe in brutal honesty, which it sounds like you're not talking about brutal honesty. You're (laughs) talking about ruminating on a bad experience. But I also believe in struggling. I believe I believe in suffering, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. I still push my body physically and my mm-hmm. mind mentally. But I do find at times it's hard to find a balance that mm-hmm. if you are always pushing yourself. I'll You're say this. Break. I think it's necessary to push yourself like okay. that to be great in anything. Mm-hmm. But if you get caught up in that, if there's not some sort of a balance, it's really hard to appreciate your accomplishments. It's hard to appreciate yes. that I just made an Olympic team. Oh, yeah. And you need to push yourself. You have to be brutally honest. Mm -hmm. But if you don't sit back and cultivate some positive energy, Mm -hmm. long term, you're in trouble.
1: Yeah. And there are a lot of moments along the way that I probably didn't take time to appreciate. But one competition, oh, I think it was 2009 or something. No, no. Maybe it was 2010. I can't remember the year, but I won a... Diamond League event in Doha, and this was after Olympic Games, so it must have been 2009 or something. And I was—that was to me. I remember how good I felt that competition. And when I think about, oh, what was the best competition? It's that, not Olympic Games. Like I, I kind of have a sting in my heart for Olympic Games, but there was this one random Diamond League competition where I just. Got my mind right. I was in the right place mentally. I was in the right place physically. I was in the right place emotionally. And I was on fire. And I remember it. And I have a unique ability, honestly, probably self preservation, to just forget the things that I don't like. So a lot of Olympic Games, I don't remember. Like, I'm, because I just, I was not pleased with myself, per se, about the competition. There's some other things I remember, you know, being in China and stuff like that. But competition, I just don't remember it because I, I didn't like it. You know, I didn't like my performance. but I'm happy and proud to have been there. But I was disappointed in myself for sure.
0: You've been very honest about your mental health throughout your career. Mm -hmm. One of the quotes that I wrote down here was, I was a good athlete, which I think you were a great athlete. But you said, I was a good athlete, but I struggled a lot, Mm -hmm. was overwhelmed a lot. Mm -hmm. What in particular led to your struggles, you being overwhelmed? Was it this rumination on mistakes? What do you think? And what did that look like?
1: So, yes, the struggling was 100% (laughs) self-imposed and (laughs) no pressure from anyone. Nobody put pressure on me. And I have always said that nobody's harder on Fumi than Fumi. And that is a fact. And it has always been that way. No one can be – you can't say anything to me that I haven't said to myself. Now what? That's how I feel and that's how I always thought. So that struggling was self-imposed. It presented itself in trying too hard. Trying too hard is never the answer. If you have to force it, it's crap. And I did a lot of that. And I didn't know, and no one stopped me. I'm not blaming anyone else, but I would try so hard. And sometimes I would be commended for trying so hard. That's not the answer.
0: One of the things that I know about you is that you committed to therapy early in life, Mm -hmm. in college. I didn't even know what that was in college. yet you still seem to have some mental struggles. Mm -hmm. Do you think when you're chasing such high goals, these struggles are inevitable no matter what you do?
1: No, I don't. And I was introduced to therapy through my coaches and I appreciated that. And I did value speaking to people. I stand by the fact now I just wasn't speaking to the right people. I don't want to just, just I don't want to have this com- communication about how I feel in here with just anybody. And I never found consistently the person who I could consistently have. And it's very expensive to be in therapy. So you're telling me I already got to train, feed myself, live, take care of any kind of physical doctor's bills, chiropractic, whatever therapy is very expensive and oftentimes not covered by insurance so sometimes i couldn't afford it
0: i think the people that need it the most oftentimes it's not set up for i've had people in my family the people who really need therapy are not out there killing it in in business and making tons of money Mm -hmm. and there definitely seems to be a problem there and i've also heard that from family members Mm -hmm. that it's important to bond with your therapist. It you need to feel rhythm safe. with your therapist. And if you don't, you need to keep trying other ones. And I think that education is still not really out there. Yeah. So don't just walk in and think, well, it's me. No, mm-hmm. you may need to see 10 different therapists before you find the yeah. right one.
1: I probably saw four or five different ones, maybe even more than that, and never really got what I needed or bonded or felt safe. A lot of it was like, I just didn't, I'm not saying like I felt like something was wrong with the therapist. I didn't feel like it was a safe place to unload all of my baggage. So I'd try a different one or I'd just be like, oh, I'll just deal with it. Or I'd be like, you just don't get me. Like Sometimes it would be like culturally, I just don't really feel like I can have this conversation with you because you don't know what the heck I'm talking about. And I'm not about to sit here and try to explain things to you. That aggravates me more. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then so between not finding the right connection and maybe the cost of things... I don't think I got the most out of it that I could, but I was never apprehensive about going to therapy at all.
0: Well, and I will not say I'm an expert in therapy. I'm not. I've Mm -hmm. actually, I don't think I've ever been, but I don't think you can avoid setbacks. I don't think you can avoid anxiety and doubt when you're chasing the goals you were chasing. Mm -hmm. I think the goal is probably to become more agile, if that makes sense. The Mm -hmm. goal is to make it less likely for you to regress. Let me ask you this. At this point looking back, are you grateful for your setbacks and struggles? I will say I don't I'm not there yet. I don't know if I am grateful yet. Are you?
1: Grateful or respectful of like <laughs> I would love not to have struggled, you know, but I do know, man, even some I can reflect on some of the worst struggles to know, you know what? I probably no, I don't want to say needed that, but going through some things let me know my abilities, my boundaries. It made me tougher, more resilient. And if there's a way to make someone resilient and tougher without damaging them, without having to go through struggles, (laughs) let me know. Because that'd be great in rearing children, I imagine, and guiding young people. But I got some of my toughness and strength through some of the struggles that I wish I didn't have. So I respect the experiences that I had don't know if I appreciate them. (laughs) You don't
0: know if you're grateful for them. I don't know if I'm grateful for them yet. I mean, I keep hearing that, that you'll, I'm not saying I've had these great struggles, but I've certainly had my setbacks. I've certainly had my anxiety Mm -hmm. and doubt. And it takes quite an evolved person to look back and say, I'm grateful because that got me to now. But one of the things I'm working on is having the confidence to bring all of me with me. For a long, long time, my narrative of being successful and being great was so important to me, and I would protect that narrative, Mm -hmm. and I would not share the setbacks. I would not Mm. share the failure. I would not share the anxiety or the doubt,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and I found that that was dishonest, but I also Mm -hmm. found that it was unhelpful, and it Mm -hmm. painted a picture to others that wasn't true and then maybe made them feel less than, especially those close to me, if they're experiencing those things and say, well, Clay doesn't. He's got life figured yeah. out. And so that was something I've thought a lot about. But I, I don't think I'm there yet. I'm on that journey.
1: So I'll, I, I might say that my transition to being a little bit more comfortable with that, comfortable with that probably came in instructing and coaching because inevitably you're going to see an athlete maybe go through the same thing that you went through. So you have to let them know, uh-uh, you don't get to fall down and die now. This is not this is not that. Okay. Let me tell you, I went through this. And whenever you say that to a young athlete, a lot of times they're like, not you. I'm like, "Uh, yeah, me, but you got to find out a way to manage and be resilient and things like that. So I think that you are probably on that path because you realize that telling your honest story is going to be helpful to someone else. It's only that I feel as though I began coaching pretty early where I it was instinctual. I had to, because I'm like- that, that you're going through, I went through that. That's okay, look at me, I'm good now.
0: Well, it makes perfect sense. If you have a young person there going through something you went through, mm-hmm. I think your instinct is going to be to empathize with them and mm-hmm. to share your story. Mm-hmm. And if nothing else, to let them know you see them and you've been there and here's the path to get through it. Let me try something, this may or may not work. Mm-hmm. I wanna project on you with some of the things I felt as I've mm-hmm. went through some of these experiences. And let me know if you felt these things and if not, you can just let me know what you make of them. One of the things... I've always felt as a high achiever, someone who's been fairly successful in sports, athletics, business, is that I'm being hyperbolic when I talk about anxiety. I am being fraudulent as if, yes, this experience is difficult. Yes, it sucks. Yes, there's anxiety and sleepless nights and stress. But is it really as bad as you're making it? Do you deserve the does it deserve the attention I'm giving it? Have you ever felt like that when you're going through these experiences?
1: Let me try to be honest and answer this. Maybe early on, yes, but for as long as I can remember, no, because everybody's problems are real to them, period. And just because I don't understand why that, which maybe I could have experienced, is not as big of a deal to me, it is to you. I'm not going to say, okay, well, you shouldn't feel that way. You should never tell someone they shouldn't feel a certain way. You certainly shouldn't tell yourself that. Like, no, you don't, you can't feel that way. That's too big of a feeling to have for this. No, but you can tell me how you are going to try to do better and speak affirmatives into what you're going to do to get past that or deal with it. But absolutely not, because I have met too many people or I've had friends, even when we were young, where it's like, that's the thing that shook you. That's hilarious to me, but that's the thing that shook you. And okay. I get that that shook you. It doesn't. That doesn't have to be my same struggle because guess what? When I tell you my struggle, you have to be patient with me. And that's why I really respect my friends. I have like four. I don't have a whole lot of friends. I like a whole bunch of people. I'm very protective about my space. We're all very different. And my best friend, she'll, she is very sensitive to the fact that there might be something this big in her mind that is this big in my mind, but she knows it and she doesn't make me feel bad about it. And there might be something this big in my mind that is that big in her mind, and she feels some kind of way about it. And you know what? That's okay, because that's your trigger, and this is mine. And I did get that early on, and I was lucky to have at least friends who we understood that about each other, and it was like, yeah, this is huge to me. But then those people can help minimize them for you. So I don't think that you should feel bad about thinking, oh, I'm putting too much into this feeling that I have. No, it's real to you. Well, now, what, But what are you going to do about it now? Yeah,
0: I like this therapist Fumi here, so I'm going <laughs> to keep going. I guess for me, in my past, it's been a- extremely difficult for me to reconcile these feelings or these emotions with knowledge of others that have less yeah. opportunity, less resources, don't have the shoulders that we stood on, mm-hmm. less privilege, mm-hmm. and more significant problems, problems mm-hmm. that may not have real answers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe where it comes from with me.
1: So I would say in those spaces, in your, in your circle, in your private time, in your place where you feel safe, you're allowed to have those conversations, but you would never have those conversations with people who you know, who are struggling more than you. And that's not, they're not privy to that. They're not privy to the things that you carry on your shoulders. That's to presume that someone who you look at who's even more successful with with more things that you aspire and look up to can't have problems. Probably got even more problems than anybody. You know what I mean? Nobody is free from problems. And I know that because I have seen some miserable, successful people. Some of their issues are self-imposed. Some of them are because more money, more problems, you know, or more success, more problems. It's Everyone has it. So you can't say, okay, well, I can't feel this way because there are people out there who don't have this, that, and the other. That's valid. That's true. And you still have to take care of you, your family, your people, your progeny, all of that stuff. And those people who we know maybe are also suffering, we do what we can to give back to them, but you don't lose yourself in that. And you don't negate the things that you are feeling. You can't can't do that because then you really aren't being true to yourself.
0: You know, one of the things I thought My solution to this is I've heard, and this is very popular lately, is to think of your brain like a muscle. Think of it like a Mm -hmm. bone. And would you ever say, I'm not going to strengthen that muscle because I have too much privilege? Would you ever say, (laughs) I'm not going to go to a doctor because I have too much privilege? Mm -hmm. No. So if you're going to be great physically, why not be great mentally? Mm -hmm. One of the things you said about everyone having problems, my Oma, my German Oma used Mm -hmm. to say, if you put everyone's problems out in the street. You'd go take yours back real fast. And I, I, but, but to my point, I used to say, Oh my, I don't even need to see their problems. I'll keep mine. I know I'll (laughs) keep mine. Given your answers there, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but I write a lot. And one of the Mm -hmm. things I wrote down to myself last year was take yourself seriously and don't take yourself seriously. Mm -hmm. You need a little of both. Mm -hmm. Being self assured comes with a strong dose of don't sweat the small stuff. So mm-hmm. do you worry about balancing healthy mental examination with don't sweat the small stuff?
1: Oh, all the time. I am queen sweat, the small stuff. That's what I do. I uh, got a PhD in that, but I do have people around me who will check me to not sweat the small stuff. And then there are times where I, i re- I'll sit back and I'm like, have you been in this microscopic you know, looking at this one issue for too long. And I will check myself. I might've gotten deep into it before I do check myself, but I will check myself and I will tell myself, okay, well, number one, you are not a joy to be around (laughs) when you are doing that. And I don't like that. I don't like permeating my issues on anyone just by being, by ruminating too much on what I'm feeling. Right. So that might, that might make me check myself because I'll be like, how are you being perceived? (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Do you worry at all about Us as a society, as a culture, sweating this small stuff too much right now. I think we've made this great move to examining mental health, Mm -hmm. but where where is the balance? Where do we not sweat the small stuff?
1: So I think that right now, especially when we're talking about mental health and maybe some other things that we have put under the rug for so long, there's not too much of it right now because it's been gone. It's been hidden and tabooed and whatnot for so long. So you have to, if you're going to. You know, now put a lot of emphasis on it. You have to do it regularly. So I, I hear people talk about mental health, and I don't know what the mental, what the regularity of it. But there might be certain situations that come up, and now we're gonna have a huge conversation about mental health, and we're not gonna talk about it for a while. But it is something that I'm always willing to talk about because it is something that I want people to know that me, Fumi, a young African American woman. Olympian, I want to talk about this. This is real. We don't have to have any kind of emotion about this. You don't have to feel taboo about it. We're going to have this conversation because maybe that's not what any people have experienced in the past. And we can do this anytime. We can have this conversation anytime, not just when something happens in the news. We can have this conversation anytime. I'm like, I'm probably going to bring it up so that we can know that it's okay. So sweating the small stuff, yes, until it's no longer a big deal, until there's no longer people who are like, that's stupid.
0: What I'm hearing from you, And the lesson I'm taking is if you have these conversations consistently, it's easier to identify what's sweating the small stuff and what is something that really needs to be examined. To yeah, I think
1: that they, I think so, yeah. you know, because think about maybe people who haven't felt comfortable talking about their mental health and how long they've held all of that in for so long. It's got to come out you know what i mean and some of it might be small some of it might be big and maybe something small it turns into something big and then also kind of like you said maybe the more that we're talking about it you can be told hey that's actually not even really worth you going down that path for i just think that when it comes to talking about someone's mental health number one you should always take it super seriously not like be you know flipping yeah like take it seriously have the conversation And provide guidance and solutions. That's the easy way to not kind of ruminate on stuff that doesn't even matter.
0: The other thing I'm hearing from you is create that friendship circle, that trusted Mm -hmm. circle where they can speak hard truths to you. Yes. And they can also be there for you. And I think the more we talk about that, maybe the more we talk about mental health, the easier it is to develop those friendship circles where, Mm -hmm. hey, we do this once a week. Mm -hmm. And it's it's part of our journey. Once Mm -hmm. a week we get together. And because we do it so much, I can say, Fumi, that's something you should probably move on from. Or, hey, yeah. no, wait a second. This sounds like it's really mm-hmm. bothering you.
1: Yeah. No, I think that that's important. And, and I feel like just me, when I think about myself, I think it's it's a little hard to have a, a, a very large group of friends and do that. And I just like to keep my circle a little bit small. But my small circle, and I have sisters also who will check me and keep me in line and be honest with me, that's what they're there for. And I do rely on that deeply. I truly rely on that. I rely on the people. I rely on my dad to do that. I really rely on them to do that. My very small circle is very important to me. And I do know that not everybody has that. And so I actually don't know what to... You try to build it then. you know, I I actually don't know what you do in the situation that you don't have that. But I know I thank God for that, honestly, often because... That helps me have a different perspective or a better perspective of what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and how I'm processing the things in my mind.
0: Well, a community, a tribe, is not just important for you. It's important for every human yeah. being. There's plenty of research on how important it is to get it together is. and share resources, share time, share thoughts, share feelings. And mm-hmm. you are fortunate to have that because there are some that don't. And yeah. I'm fortunate to have that. But I'm fairly new to this mental health game. Like I said, for probably 37 years, I just kind of went through life, making things work, mm-hmm. toughing things out, not sweating the small stuff, which I think is kind of the athlete's way. And yeah. I think it's interesting that this conversation is is now in the forefront. But like I said, there's still that old me going, where's the balance? Where's the balance? And I don't know where it is. And I think that the finding balance is one of the most difficult things you could do in any domain. But here it's really, really difficult.
1: So while formal mental health with athletes or something like that I think maybe is a little bit more new but I think that formerly athletes having mental health issues is not a new thing and it's not and them getting help for it is also not a new thing them getting help for it formally formally like from a licensed somebody somebody might be new and speaking about it publicly might be new but training groups with you know, your courtside psychologist, who's just your coach, people who were doing better jobs of that as coaches probably prevented a lot of mental health breakdowns. And they're not licensed in anything. And I'm not saying don't go to a licensed therapist. I'm saying that I think that some of the more personal relationship and coaching might be leaving. and, And some of that mental health communication and relationship building that you might have with some of your mentors is no longer there. So some of those things that you're dealing with that you could t- speak to your coach about or some kind of mentor who's not a formal therapist, I think that there's not a whole lot of that. And I think that that's what athletes may have relied on in the past. I'm guessing. I don't know, but I kind of feel that way.
0: That's what we do here. We just guess. Yeah, yep. but I'm just i just guessing. Yeah, <laughs> but somebody's going to hear it and be willing to talk about it themselves. Yeah. So I love to hear that you know, you're training young athletes and it sounds like a significant portion of time have nothing to do with the physical. Yeah. Have to do with the mental. Yeah. And I think that that's huge. That's key. Well, I have one more question for you mm-hmm. and then I'll let you get on here and enjoy your Friday night. You mentioned speaking in affirmations. Mm-hmm. Talk that's about huge. what it means to speak in affirmations and why that's so important for you.
1: Okay. I can't remember the class, can't remember the professor, but whatever. At Rice, there was one line that stood out to me where a professor told me that the brain cannot process negations. Like, oh, I sure hope I don't foul on the long jump board. Your mind's not going to think, hey, don't foul. Why don't you tell yourself what you are going to do? And I took that to heart in everything. So I don't allow myself to speak to myself with any kind of negative I just can't do it. And for some people, like that's not the real world. Okay, whatever. I don't care. I like it in my fantasy world where I am allowed to do this. You know, where I'm allowed to tell myself, Fumi, you're going to do this. You can do this. Or you know what? I didn't do this like this, but now I'm going to make sure I'm just using a track and field metaphor just because it's easier right now. Instead of telling myself, well, I sure hope I don't reach out and foul or Fumi, don't reach out and foul. I'm going to say, Fumi, get your foot underneath you. Get your foot underneath so that there's no concept of foul. The word foul is not even in there. I'm only thinking, get your foot underneath you. And if you say that to yourself enough, you're probably going to get your foot underneath you because you're not even thinking about what you're not going to do. You're telling me what you are going to do. That is so important. And I tell my athletes all the time, do not tell me what you're not going to do. I don't want to hear it. Walk away from me. Don't talk to me. Come back and tell me what you're about to do because I don't care what you're not going to do. I need to know because now you're making a promise to yourself. Forget me. Tell me what you're about to do. And I do that to myself. I'm not just picking on them. I, I tell them, but I do that to myself because I think it's so important. And I do think that that's a good way to stop the negative talking in your mind or the doubting in your mind or the whatever it is that's not helping you. Tell yourself what you're going to do, not what you're not going to do. Tell your, it speaks positively to yourself. That is one of my life hacks that helps me get out of any kind of little rut I might be in
0: tell yourself what you're going to do. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. As I mentioned, I'm working on bringing all myself with me and it seems like you've achieved that, the good and the bad, the ugly. And uh, I admire that. So thank you for coming and spending some time with me. It's nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you as well. Thank you.